Good afternoon, everyone. And welcome to the Cato Institute. A special welcome to those of you who are watching online uh, following Cato's live stream from the website. My name is Sloan Frost, and it is my pleasure to moderate today's panel. I am currently a graduate student at the University of Chicago studying health policy, and I'm also a co-founder of Students for Liberty, a nonprofit organization whose mission is to provide support to students and student organizations dedicated to liberty. Today I also wear the hat of a concerned young person anxious to see the direction of healthcare in America. Every day, our generation sifts through thousands of blog updates, RSS feeds, and emails from colleagues and professors. It's an uphill battle to stay up to date on current affairs, let alone understand a 2,000-page bill that overhauls one-sixth of our economy. The healthcare debate raged this past year between experts and pundits weighing in on a variety of issues. Many of them were largely irrelevant to us. Stories of Medicare restructuring, end-of-life care, and doc fixes. Somehow, our generation of 18 to 29-year-olds was discarded as an irrelevant group. After all, we are not known for our campaign contributions. And most of our concerns went completely unaddressed. In fact, the things that are most important to us seem the least important to politicians. Such questions as, how will our student health insurance be affected? Can we get health insurance that fits our needs, or do we need to get a plan pre-approved by the government? And when we do have health insurance, how do we actually get health care? Will we get to see the doctors, or do we have to wait months just to get a basic appointment? Anyone who has called to schedule a doctor's appointment knows that simply having health insurance does not mean you can see the doctor whenever you want. Especially if 30 million new people are joining the system, will we have to wait even longer to get the care that we have been promised? These concerns don't even begin to address the long-term issues of health care overhaul. As we enter the workforce and begin to pay higher taxes, will those funds go to cover high-quality services or just foot the bill for another generation's care? Reports are coming out every day of Medicare recipients losing benefits because of funding shortfalls and doctors who can no longer afford to treat patients that have government insurance. And if taxes continue to rise to pay for this system, does that mean we save less for our own care? Unlike the government, we're actually constrained by our budgets. And restrictions on individual savings accounts and other such things with skyrocketing premiums do not allow us to actually save the money that we want. Budget constraints are an all-too-familiar story for our classmates who are in medical school, the very people on whom we will rely for future health care. In fact, 87% of medical students have outstanding loans, some of whom have upwards of $300,000 of debt after residency. With financial problems like these, reform is more like restriction. The so-called reforms funding also begs the question, are we simply the financiers of a broken system, or can we, be, in fact, be the ones to turn it around and improve access to high-quality medicine for a nation in need of new direction? Certainly no one would argue that our parents and grandparents don't deserve access to care. But at what cost? Medical health insurance trust fund assets will be gone in the next seven years. But the new bill creates an entirely new trust fund, deceptively called the CLASS Act, and uses the same broken financing system. What gives Congress the right to tax us more when they cannot balance current programs? With Congress acting this way, political elites have again failed us. And again, their solution is to literally make us pay for their mistakes. What is more of our money being taken away to fund a promise whose benefits we will never see? Instead of creating more entitlements, we should create more choice. 
the ability for people to purchase health care with their own dollars instead of the funds the government has told them they're allowed to spend. Enable consumer-driven health plans, such as health savings accounts, that are very popular for the young and healthy, instead of making these plans illegal or at least unfavorable, as the new law does. There's so much potential for our generation to get tailored coverage, but the political will outlawing such coverage is just as strong. In an effort to answer these questions and discuss how exactly the health legislation will affect our generation, it is my pleasure to welcome a group of experts today, beginning with Michael Cannon of the Cato Institute. Michael Cannon is the Cato Institute's Director of Health Policy Studies. Thank you, Sloan. Thank you all for coming here. Um, I want to assure you that if you're a young adult, you are not irrelevant to Obamacare. They just don't want you to know how you are relevant. Uh, and I hope to uh, explain that to you today. Let's see. I think that's me. Boom. There we go. First, I want to talk about uh, uh, the basic outline, the basic structure of this, uh, of this new law. Obamacare, its, its main elements are, base, are basically comprised of a, a three-legged stool. First is what uh, is best described as price controls that the law imposes on health insurance. Whenever you hear someone talking about uh, bans on exclusions or denials for pre-existing conditions or bans on health rating or community rating, these are all price controls, and I'll explain why. Uh, this, the next leg of this stool is a mandate on nearly all Americans to purchase health insurance which is necessary to fix the problems caused by the price controls, and I'll explain why. And then the third leg of this uh, crickety uh, stool is uh, a raft of new subsidies that are necessary uh, to fix the problems caused by the mandate. And you sort of get the sense that uh, we're, this sounds a little bit like the old woman who swallowed a fly, although Obamacare probably has a swallowing a, the, the goat by now, if not the horse. Um, so I'll be explaining how, all these, uh, how, how each of these follows from the one before, uh, and I'll start with the price controls. But before I explain the price controls on health insurance, we'll have to talk a little bit about how health insurance markets work. Now, insurance redistributes money from people, who, uh, from people who don't need any medical care to similar people who need medical care because they suffered an injury or an illness. Let's say that after the insurance companies ask us all the worthwhile questions that they can think of, uh, they can group us into five categories based on our predicted uh, or expected medical expenses. Let's say that group A here is the healthiest and group E is the least healthy. Um, and that these represent uh, their predicted health expenses or uh, the average predicted health expenses for a given year. Now, most people in Group A aren't going to need any medical care in a given year, but some of them will. And by the end of the year, you see how much uh, and who needs how much. And the insurance company charges everyone a premium based on the average expected medical expenses for people in the group plus administrative costs. And then the people who don't need that medical care, their premiums end up subsidizing the people who do need medical care. Okay, pretty straightforward. Same thing happens in Group B and Group C and so forth. Now, in a competitive marketplace, insurers are going to charge premiums that correspond to the risk that they're assuming. What would happen if an insurance company charged you more than it costs to insure you or everyone else like you? Another insurance company would step in and they would take away that insurance company's business by charging you a premium that reflects your health risk, your expected medical expenses. And in all cases, uh, when you have a competitive market, well, so in a competitive market, insurers are going to charge healthy people less than they charge sick people. And in all cases, competition between insurers are going to put uh, downward pressure on premiums 
it, competition is going to put downward pressure on premiums for everybody, sick and healthy alike. Now, why is it important that we let market forces determine the prices for health insurance? Well, for one thing, it's fair. You're asking insurance companies to assume a certain amount of risk. And it's uh, only fair that they should be adequately compensated for the risk they're assuming. Uh, number two, it makes health insurance more affordable for young people who are typically healthy and have the lowest incomes. And it creates virtuous incentives. It encourages people to buy insurance when they're healthy and not wait until they're sick when they're going to face higher premiums. Not only does that mean they're going to be helping pay the medical bills of others who fall sick, but they'll receive protection against their premiums increasing when they uh, become sick themselves. Um, Another virtuous incentive, it encourages or discourages unhealthy behaviors like smoking or obesity because it assigns a price to those behaviors. And if you, pay, if you engage in those behaviors, you'll pay, you'll pay more. If you still engage in them, it has another benefit. It allows you to tell nosy people, leave me alone. I'm paying my way. And finally, high prices for, uh, for the sick encourage insurers and providers to make health insurance and medical care less costly. Find innovative ways to do that. There's still a problem, though, which is that some pe sick people, folks, some folks over in that E category, can't afford health insurance and, uh, and therefore can't afford the expensive medical care that they need. Now, Obamacare tries to solve that problem by redistributing money from healthy people uh, to sick people rather than the sort of redistribution I was talking about happens in a competitive marketplace. They want to redistribute from healthy to sick, like so. Now, again, competitive markets only redistribute money between similar people. Obamacare wants to redistribute resources among dissimilar people, and in the process, it is going to do more harm than good. And here's how. It accomplishes this by imposing government price controls on the health insurance market. As I said before, this is what the premiums would look like for everyone in each of those groups, each, each of those risk categories. But what Obamacare does is essentially at, require insurers to charge everybody the same premium regardless of health risk. So if you have to charge everyone the same premium, that's, that premium is going to be the average expected medical expenses plus administrative costs for everyone who enrolls in that plan. Whether they're healthy or sick, you'll pull them all together. You charge everyone an average premium. So let's say this line represents that average premium. What kind of incentives does it create to charge everyone this, this, this premium right here? Well, for one thing, if you're healthy, your premiums are shot up. And if you're sick, you'll notice your premiums has dropped a lot. Now, how much uh, does, uh, do your premiums drop, uh, did your premiums go up if you're healthy? There have been a couple estimates of, uh, of, of what this will do to premiums for healthy people or what Obamacare will do. Rand says 17, they'll rise by an average of 17%. Millman gives a range of 10 to 30 with an average of 15. Another group, Shout America, says up to 50%. Now, think about the incentives that that creates. Healthy people just saw their premiums rise. What are they going to do? Well, a lot of them are going to stop buying health insurance, not just because their premiums just went up, but keep in mind, the government has told insurance companies they have to charge everyone the same regardless of health risk. So if those uh, now healthy people drop, insurance, drop their insurance and fall ill, they can sign up and get insurance at the same price as everyone else. So for uh, healthy people... <coughs> excuse me, including most young adults, dropping out of the market is almost a risk-free proposition, and that's what's happening in Massachusetts, which has already enacted a law like Obamacare. Thousands of people have dropped out of the market. They're only buying insurance when they need it. They run up expensive medical bills. Insurance pays it, and then they stop paying their premiums as soon as they get all the medical care that they need. 
Now, what happens when uh, premiums fall for older and sicker people? Well, they buy more health insurance because demand curves slope downward. They value health insurance. The price just fell. They buy more of it, of it because they have more insurance. They go to the doctor more often. They have more tests and scans and treatments. They file more claims. Economists call that moral hazard. Now, what happens when you have both healthy people dropping out of the pool and sick people buying more insurance and filing more claims? What happens to the, average co the cost of the average person in that insurance pool? Well, it rises, and as a result, insurance companies have to increase the premiums to reflect that. That, in turn, causes more healthy people to drop out because their premiums just went up again, and uh, that causes premiums to rise even more. So these estimates that I showed you probably don't capture the full impact that Obamacare will have on your health insurance premiums because this dyna that dynamic will keep on increasing your premiums over time. Now, Obamacare's price controls don't look exactly like this. It's not what they call pure community rating. Right? Uh, it allows for some variation between young and old. It looks more like this. But because these are price controls, they have uh, the, the same principal holes and will have largely the same effects. Lar Obamacare will tax young adults like you to subsidize older adults like your parents who generally have more money than you do. It's pretty perverse when you think about it, and it's why people like you will try to avoid that tax by not purchasing insurance. And it's because people like you will try to avoid that tax that Obamacare then mandates that everyone must purchase health insurance. This is what we call, the, the second leg of the stool, uh, we call the individual mandate, a, a legal requirement that everyone has to purchase a government-defined essential package of health insurance coverage or else pay a fine and maybe even face jail time. Now, what goes into that essential benefits package? Well, anything that the Congress and the uh, Department of Health and Human Services says will go in that benefits package. Uh, if you don't purchase coverage for preventive care, I'm talking 100% coverage pre for preventive care already, you'll have to do so under this law. One insurance company estimates that'll increase premiums for uh, people uh, affected by 3 to 4%. The Obama administration just released some estimates that said that the requirements that you purchase coverage without any annual or lifetime limits will increase premiums for some people by 7% or more. Those are just two or three of the mandates. There are going to be lots of other mandates that are heaped on. If history is any guide, what's going to happen is this uh, minimum, uh, this package of essential benefits is going to grow more and more costly, driving pre premiums up higher and higher. If you don't buy this mandated coverage, you're going to face fines and possibly jail time. You don't pay. Uh, you don't pay the. You don't buy the health insurance. You pay a penalty. You don't pay the penalty. They. Uh, they. They find. They impose another fine on you. You don't pay that fine. You go to jail. Just in case you're unsure of whom they're targeting with this mandate, my colleague Aaron Yellowitz put together this very helpful graph. It shows that. The age group most likely to be insured, the age group most likely to walk away from a bad health insurance deal, and therefore the age group most likely to be out of compliance with the individual mandate is young adults. As many as one-third of young adults, or actually an average of about uh, one-third of young adults lack health insurance. You are the folks that this mandate is targeting. You're also the folks the price controls are targeting. Now, uh, this, this mandate comes with a penalty. In order to get the Obamacare through Congress, they had to make the penalty really kind of small. It, was, it seems sort of mean uh, to put, uh, and there's a lot of opposition to a really expensive penalty. So the penalty uh, is only a fraction, it varies depending on your income, but it's only a fraction of the cost of the insurance that they want you to purchase. So, if you, so a, a lot of people may still 
not purchase health insurance because it's less expensive for them to just pay the penalty. And remember, the insurance company has to take you whenever you fall sick and charge you premium and not charge you more because you're sick. So we did a study here at the Cato Institute. We estimated that single adults could save up to $3,000 and families of four could save up to $8,000 per year by dropping coverage, paying the penalty, and pocketing what they would have spent on uh, on health insurance premiums. And as I mentioned already, this is already happening in Massachusetts where people are uh, opting out of the market and jumping back in when they need medical care. Another note about Massachusetts. Um, uh, a study I conducted with, uh, with an adjunct scholar here at Cato, uh, the, the aforementioned Aaron Yelowitz, found that because Massachusetts enacted a, simil- a law similar to Obamacare, young people are avoiding the state because the cost of living is so much greater. There's a special tax that's targeted at them. About 60% fewer young adults are relocating there than before. Now, remember when I said we were swallowing the horse to catch the goat? Um, it seems kind of cruel to force people to purchase insurance that they can't afford. President Obama acknowledged that during the uh, 2008 campaign. Uh, candidate Obama, I should say. So Obamacare also includes subsidies to help people uh, purchase health insurance uh, and comply with the mandate. Now, whenever a young adult complains that Obamacare is going to gouge them, the administration will answer, don't worry, there will be subsidies uh, for people like you. A couple things about that. First, the president himself acknowledges that in Massachusetts anyway, those subsidies aren't enough, that a lot of people are still worse off as a result of that law. An analysis by the insurer WellPoint suggests that a lot of young people uh, would still be worse off even with Obamacare subsidies. Let's say you're a single adult in Columbus or Indianapolis. If you make just $30,000 a year, WellPoint estimates your premiums could double even after you account for the subsidies. And if you make $42,000 a year, your premiums could triple. Second, if you're one of the single adults lucky enough to receive these subsidies, you will face implicit marginal tax rates around 50 to 60%. That's compared to the 30% uh, marginal tax rate that you would face under current law. Of course, at certain points, your implicit marginal tax rate would spike to over 100%. That is, if you work harder, you get less money. The same thing would happen if you started a family and were making between $23,000 and $100,000 a year. Your implicit marginal tax rate would hover in the neighborhood of 60 to 70% and occasionally spike as high as 200%. This is a pretty good way to trap people in poverty. Obamacare loves young adults so much, it wants to keep them poor. So I think I'm running low on time. Um, I'll recap by uh, pointing out that Obamacare's price controls tax young adults to subsidize older uh, uh, adults who have more money than they do, than young adults do. The individual mandate is designed to prevent you from avoiding that tax, and the subsidies that they offer really won't save you, and if if you do get them, they'll probably trap you and lots of other people in low-wage jobs. Now, there's a lot more to be said about how Obamacare will reduce the quality of care you receive when you inevitably fall sick. I'll leave that to Grace Marie to discuss. I'll just close with the following observation uh, from my colleague Aaron Yelowitz, which is that President Obama won the presidency with 66% of the vote among young adults, and yet his health care overhaul would impose its greatest burden on young adults. Uh, I know you may not like that, but if there's one thing you whippersnappers like almost as much as sarcasm, it is irony. So I thank you very much, and I look forward to your questions. I'm going to let that stay flashing. I like the irony. Um, thank you very much uh, for those comments. I'd also uh, like to mention that those briefing papers should be available for you outside uh, should you like to take a closer look at the information in it. Another hot topic in the news that we've been discussing lately with this overhaul is how we're going to affect the quality of care. 
We hear a lot about new insurance regulations, but not about medicines, treatments, and other techniques that are the cornerstone of high-quality health care. Our generation is going to see the long-term effects of any limits to innovation, to incentives to provide better care from providers, and not just for those with chronic illnesses. Grace Marie Turner will discuss these issues today. She is founder and president of the Galen Institute, a public policy research organization that promotes an informed debate over free market health policy. Thank you very much, Sloan. Thank you all for coming. Um, So after listening to Michael, you're thinking, why did they do this? What was the point? I actually gave a talk in Paris a few weeks ago to, they're very anxious to hear about health reform, and finally Americans have gotten it, we're going to get to universal coverage, and they just couldn't understand why so many people are opposing this legislation, why people were marching in the streets and carrying flags and calling their members of Congress. Toward the end of the debate in the Congress, Congress's switchboards can handle about 50,000 calls an hour. Congress was getting 100,000 calls an hour, overwhelmingly opposed to this legislation. So I tried to explain to the Europeans what's going on. Of course Americans want more affordable health coverage. We want to expand coverage. We want better quality care. But we also want stability in our health care system. And the problem with this legislation is that it makes too many changes too fast. When you look at the number of people that truly need health health insurance and have a difficult time finding it, it's somewhere in the range of about 15 million people. That seems to me where we should have started with the, with the solution to this problem. Instead, we have made dramatic changes to our entire health care system. And that is the reason that we're seeing huge opposition. A recent Fox News poll showed that only 12% of Americans want this law to go into effect as it is. Rasmussen has about 55 to 60% of Americans saying that this law should not go into effect. So the architecture of the law, 32 million people are going to get health insurance. 16 of them, 16 million of them through Medicaid, program designed for lower income Americans. 16 million are going to get coverage through a new system of subsidies. But to do this, we are going to impose $500 billion in new taxes on Americans and about $575 billion in cuts to the Medicare program. Makes too many changes too fast. And just a little bit of background on on this legislation. You know, in your civics civics classes, you learn that for a bill to become a law, that the same legislation has to pass both the House and the Senate. But after Scott Brown was elected in Massachusetts on January the 19th, the House had passed a bill, the Senate had passed a bill, they were different. And they were trying to merge them into one bill that could go back to both houses to pass. Well, Scott Brown's election kept them from doing that. If they were going to get health reform done, and President Obama was determined that they were, then they needed to pass. The only option they had was to pass the Senate bill through the House. Nancy Pelosi had said earlier, no way we can possibly get the Senate bill through the House. She clearly had a change of heart and changed her mind because it was passed, but this was never intended to be the final legislation. This was really literally a Christmas tree 
passed on Christmas Eve to get 60 votes out of the Senate, and then they were going to refine it and turn it into a final bill after that. But the only thing they could do is pass the Senate bill into law and then try to patch it together later through the reconciliation process, really basically a second health reform bill. So it was amended, this major piece of legislation affecting one-sixth of our economy, really overhauling one-sixth of our economy, was passed with not even a final bill, amended in the first week, and now we are seeing regulations coming from the, from the Obama administration just mountains of legislation to come and regulations to come to try to define what this legislation is going to do. So the reason that Americans are opposing this legislation is because not only does it not achieve its goals of achieving universal coverage, 24 million people are still going to be not covered. But it actually increases costs for individuals, increases costs for businesses, and increases spending for the federal government. So I'll talk with you a little bit about what this really means for you. And we need to talk a little bit about the dollars, so they spent, a, you know, the president said, we have to keep the price tag of this legislation under a trillion dollars. Well, how much is a trillion dollars? If you had $1 bills and you stretched them in a long line, you would go around the earth more than two times. That's how much a trillion. We hear a billion, we hear a million, we hear a trillion. What's the difference? A trillion is an enormous amount of money. A billion. You've lived a billion seconds when you're 32 years old. So to live a billion second, a trillion seconds, you'd have to live to be 32,000 years old. So we just passed the $11 trillion mark in our national debt. And the reason this is important is that this is real dollars that are going to have to be paid back to somebody sometime. If you had that same stack of $1 bills, and you stack them up, you would make the stack as high as the tallest skyscraper in the world in Dubai. And you would be able to have one and a half million stacks of $1 bills to show the national debt of $11 trillion. And it really gets worse than that because the Medicare program, the Medicare program, is $38 trillion in debt. So these are huge numbers that are going to have a huge impact on, the, on America in, in the decades to come and our ability to be able to continue to be a productive society that rewards you for saving and investment and hard work and taking risk or whether or not this money is simply going to continue to be funneled more and more into the government to fund old debt and benefits, health benefits, Medicare benefits for people like me. Because this money hasn't that I've been paying through my whole life into Medicare hasn't been put aside, just like Social Security. It's just been going to current, fund current benefits. So this is hugely consequential, and there is a major reason, not only at the level of premiums that Michael was talking about, but at the level of government spending of what this is going to mean for your future and for this country. 
So what is this? What is what is going to happen as a result of Obamacare? Health care costs are going to continue to rise. You're going to continue to subsidize health insurance for older Americans, as Michael explained. Taxes increasing, federal deficit, jobs creation. Let's just talk about each one of these. Congressional Budget Office has said that that if we did nothing that health insurance premiums for a family purchasing insurance in the individual market would be about $13,000 a year. With Obamacare passed, that family will be paying about more than $15,000 a year for that same policy. So with Obamacare, health insurance costs are going to go up faster than they would have without reform. And because of the community rating provisions that Michael explained to you, you're going to pay more than you otherwise would if you were buying health insurance in the open market. New York has a community rating provision, and basically it says that that young adults have to pay basically the same premiums as older Americans. Well, what happens? Young people don't buy coverage. People don't buy coverage until they're sick because they've got a guaranteed issue provision. So we see in Massachusetts and New York a lot of the dysfunctionality of the hell, of these policies that are now coming as a result of Obamacare. You're going to pay at least 17% more, perhaps as much as 50% more, maybe two or three times more, depending upon what, what city and what state that you live in, as a result of Obamacare's provisions. Now, there are subsidies, and people are saying, well, young people will earn less, and therefore they'll be eligible for the subsidies. But that's a little bit like saying that you're going to take a transfusion out of, your, out of one arm and put it into the other arm. You're ultimately paying for all of this. There's no free money out there. So these subsidies that get laundered through the federal government and laundered through the political process wind up ultimately being paid by you all, even if it may appear for, appear for, for a moment that that health insurance is subsidized. The insurance is going to be much more expensive and the mandates are going to be much more strict to purchase much more generous com- coverage than you very likely would have on your own. Taxes are absolutely going to increase. The president said nobody's going to pay taxes. This is only a tax on higher-income individuals. But there are $500 billion in taxes in this legislation. And these taxes are going to be paid in a number of different ways, including higher health insurance premiums. If they tax a health insurance company, they tax a medical device company, they tax a health insurance company, they, those, those prices, those new taxes, get built into the price of the product and the insurance policy. So ultimately, you're going to be paying all of those taxes. The federal de- deficit absolutely is going to increase. Jim Capretta from the Ethics and Public Policy Center has done some research really looking at whether or not we are going to be subsidizing just $16 million. Americans additionally, and he said that actually as many as 130 million Americans are in income categories that would qualify them for these subsidies. So if health, if employers drop coverage, as Michael indicated, many will, in order to be able to escape the penalties in Obamacare, then you're going to start to see many more people on subsidized coverage, further exacerbating the debt, even under the current assumptions. Because remember, I'm sure you've heard, that there are 10 years' worth of taxes 
that are collected under Obamacare with only six years worth of subsidy expenditures. But if you if you do 10 years worth of expenditures and 10 years worth of subsidies, then the cost of this bill, go, this law, goes to $2.4 trillion. Once again, six and a half times around the earth in $1 bills. Jobs creation, a huge issue. It's going, to sub, it's going to suffer because employers are now disincentivized to hire people, especially entry-level employees. If an employer is, uh, has 45 employees and he wants to, to grow, start a, new, start a new branch of his business that may take another 10, 12 employees to, to staff, he's going to think about that because that's then going to put him in the category that subjects him to Obamacare's mandates. Now, yes, there are small business tax credits, but the National Federation of Independent Business has said that the, the subsidies are so difficult to, to fit within that very narrow window that it's going to be useful to very, very few businesses. There is a better way. If, in fact, majority of you were to be qualified for subsidies under Obamacare, that would mean that you would very likely be on the Medicaid program. Medicaid pays doctors so little in most states that most doctors can't afford to see patients. And so that's why they wind up going to hospital emergency rooms. That's not the coverage you want. You want coverage, as Michael said, that gives you the the free choice in a competitive market that gives you options of health insurance that suits you and suits your needs and that makes it affordable, just like President Obama said it should be, as he said. It's not that people don't want health insurance. It's that they can't, they can't afford it. So how do we make health insurance more affordable and more appealing so that people can afford it? We're not going to do that through government rules and regulations and price controls with a cascade of regulations and new legislation that tries to fix the problems of the earlier legislation. So I will conclude... I was going to play you a little short video that we did last year, but if you'll go to the Galen Institute website and look at our, at our website, you'll see um, several videos that we commissioned last year, and we have a new one coming out shortly. But um, you can follow us on Twitter. You can follow us on Facebook. Facebook, visit us at galen.org, also healthreformhub.org, more than you could possibly want to know about what's happening in the healthcare world. And I thank you very much. Look forward to your questions. Um, I know I'll certainly be visiting those websites. Um, and there's so much to digest, as Ms. Turner was saying, and, and I know there's a lot for us to go through today. But there's uh, still a, a, a huge component we haven't discussed, which are the polls showing the relationship that we as young people have as the news of Obamacare continues to come out. A new Gallup poll that was released Tuesday showed that we have a steady trend of not liking what's been happening. Many of us are still skeptical about how this is actually going to improve our system. So I'm happy to introduce Kellyanne Elizabeth Conway to highlight our generation's reaction to the changes. She is founder and president of Polling Company Inc. and Women Trend, a privately held women-owned co- corporation founded in 
Thank you, Sloan. Great to be here with Grace Marie and Michael and all of you. I want to thank you not just for your interest in this topic, but for being here. And I'm, I'm sure it's the topic of healthcare, not the great reception Cato puts on that brought you here. Uh, my perspective today is through the lens of young people. And my perspective is not the impact. You've heard that from two really great experts. And particularly in the case of Grace Marie, I knew her many, many years ago during the first health care battle in 1993, uh, 94, uh, when Clinton Care was around. And it struck me at some point when I kept on running into the same people doing, during this most recent health care debate, oh, we had this battle 15 years ago. Oh, I remember back 16 years ago that in addition to you not being involved in that debate, um, one Barack Obama was not involved in that debate. And it's a very serious matter because a lot of the folks on the Hill or in policy shops or in the government elsewise were somehow involved with that in 1993-94 during the Clinton administration, and he was not. And I think it it showed insofar as there wasn't that perspective as to how much people disliked what they saw in 1993-1994 and why. And the reasons why really reverberated again. It was Groundhog Day all over again in looking at this. My lens is through young people, and I have to start by telling you that I happen to like very much young people. I think you get a bad rap, by and large. I think you got a very bad deal in this health care plan, but I think you get a bad rap in many corners. Um, I employ young people. I have nieces who are young people and friends' children who are young people. I have very tiny children who one day will be young people. And I was once myself a young person. So I wanted to say from the beginning that the reason that I want to present to you today through the lens of what young people are telling pollsters is because I seriously think there's something that can be done about the current state of play and what has passed in moving forward. I really don't like to have the rear view mirror of, oh, this was awful and this is terrible and you couldn't do anything about it, so now you're really stuck. I think that in moving forward, there are many things that we can do to really activate and inform and educate ourselves. Um, I do think you got a bad deal through Obamacare, and there are a couple of reasons. My colleagues have touched on some of them. One is that it's easy to ignore young people in the political process. The uptick in turnout in 2008, notwithstanding, young people you do underperform their population numbers at the ballot box. Older people overperform their population numbers at the ballot box, meaning as a percentage of our nation's population. And so it's easy to ignore you. There's You don't have a, quote, coalition or association of young people, or you don't have, uh, you're not big joiners. You're not big members of things. You're much more the rugged individualist. I happen to think that's a great strength for the, these generations or this generation. But at the same time, it's easy to um, to pull one over on you here in Washington. Um, you're, it's also a bad deal for you because just think about any transaction you would want to do. Maybe you'd first go online and you would try to figure out the system. You try to say, I want to buy something new. I want, I want to buy a service that either I don't have and think I should have or I used to have or that I currently have but want to trade up or want to get better value. And so what do you do? You start to comparison shop. You start to look across state lines on the Internet and see what's available. You start to look for the best value, and value may begin for you with a matter of dollars and cents, but may also be about quality and the ability to trade in that product or get a refund, or value may also be a great customer service uh, type of deal. It might be a warranty. It might be any number of things. But value to you is how you define objectively and subjectively. And perhaps you also um, want to 
negotiate the price. None of that, ladies and gentlemen, none of that exists with respect to health care reform. There's a reason that you see ads for car insurance all of the time, auto insurance all the time, and never for health insurance, with very few exceptions. Because you can't go across state lines and purchase health insurance, nor can about 1,600 companies in this country cannot sell it to you across state lines. And none of that was touched in 2,700 pages of Obamacare. None of it, not even in a single footnote. Some sections go on and on and on and on and on, not even in the footnote. Uh, your generation doesn't trust my former profession. Lawyers very much doesn't think much of the legal system and our clogged dockets and our over-litigious society, of which you're really not very active litigants, uh, by and large. The 2,700 pages, not a single touch, not a single mention, not even a footnote, not a tab and a page, not a throwaway comment about tort reform, about limiting liability um, to help all this, these runaway medical malpractice suits and verdicts against our doctors. And I think I tend to think, believe in the essential wisdom of people, including younger people. You do the math. You're smart enough to do the math. We're going to now put 30 million plus new people on the health care rolls and not add a single doctor. Does that add up to you? But nobody ever really says it that way. It's just blah, 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 2,700 pages worth and not that. So that's simple math for you. Health insurance, you can't cost compare. It is what it is. It's going to cost you what it's going to cost you. And Grace Marie and, and Michael have very deftly laid that out for you today. And on top of that, think about this with any product or service you might want to buy. Not only can you trade it in for a better option, but you could be penalized, including criminal penalties, jail time, and certainly financial fines, uh, money fines, for not purchasing the product or service that you're not quite enamored with. Um, I think it's like shopping in a Soviet Safeway. There are no choices. There is no value, even now. Uh, <clears throat> So let's get started here. Okay. Pre-healthcare reform. We did a survey at my firm for United Healthcare in the old golden rule. Grace Marie will remember um, uh, before the healthcare vote. And these are two. These are the results to two different questions. The first is eighty-two percent of. Um, of young people, this was 18 to 21 year olds, so really trying to capture the college age market. You know, what is your plan post college? And 82% disagreed with the statement, I do not need health insurance because I'm in good health. And that's really increased the number who disagree. There was a real sense of invincibility there for quite a while that, oh, that, that's something old people need, mom and dad maybe, me, no way. Um, so I think there's a real, uh, there, there's a real candid recognition that among these college age students, that health insurance, having health insurance would be a good thing and that uh, your current good health does not make you impervious to needing that. And then a separate question, a slim majority, 51%, said, quote, after I graduate, my extra money will be best spent on something other than health insurance. We've seen this for a long time, and we see people really try to negotiate this with private employers also. Give me that money. Instead, I'll go buy health insurance. The employer never follows up on that to make sure go out and have a great time every weekend, maybe buy a sports car, fancy new tech product, tech gadget, and then boom, um, you're uninsured, something bad happens, God forbid, and uh, under the current system, you're covered if you go to the emergency room, but under what would happen is um, honest people who wanted that coverage, who went and took the employer's money and bought coverage, would um, have to pay for you, and you would have to, your generation is going to have to end up paying for lots of people who would do that. 
impact, economic impact of reform worries young adults. This is a survey. I've got all the methodology at the bottom, but this is a survey uh, that I will be showing you quite a bit in the next couple of minutes. Um, and I sh I'm showing you among 18 and 24-year-olds. But the survey was 1,200 registered voters in 35 key congressional districts, all held by Democrats, right before the vote. And then this survey was also, there's got a lot of coverage, actually, and we did it for Independent Women's Voice. It was also the subject of an op-ed I co-authored in the Wall Street Journal a couple days before the health care vote. But look at this. Um, Young people agree, disagree. The only way to improve the health care system is for the government to mandate everyone to have health insurance. Two-thirds, uh, roughly the same number who supported President Obama, actually, in 2008, disagree with that. And that's exactly what this health care plan is. People can call it whatever they want. That's what it is. That's what the effect is. We as a nation can't afford to pay for the current health care legislation right now. 71% of young people agreeing. This is really key because for the first time since Gallup has been asking the question, uh, they, Gallup asked this, this great question. I wish it were mine, but they asked this fantastic question. Looking ahead 25 years from now, what will be the most important problem faced in the country? And for years, you know, during the heyday of Al Gore, it was the environment. Before that, it was terrorism. It's been the economy and education here and there. It's now, for the first time, federal budget deficit. And, that's, and that is really embedded in answers like this where people say, excuse me, we are so saddled with debt we are spending money on bailouts and uh, <clears throat> bailing out Detroit, bailing out your neighbor's mortgage, bailing out Wall Street, bailing out Greece now, and spending on such ridiculous things. We just can't afford to do this right now. Uh, a similar number, three-quarters saying current legislation gives government too big a role in the health care system. That's really important because uh, people do believe the younger you are, the more blind faith and um, enthusiasm you have for the government, but yours is a very libertarian generation, and I'm saying it at the Cato Institute. It's a very libertarian generation, and there is a natural suspicion, I think an earned suspicion for institutions, including government. And then finally, 8 and 10, this is a very uh, resonant point that many, all the generations are making. This is just the wrong priority right now. And for all the distraction and lack of focus, healthcare is actually up there. Uh, moving on, again, before the vote, asking younger people, do you favor or oppose the health care bills being discussed in Congress? So just generally speaking. And you had an 11-point difference between favorability and opposition. And in fact, the intensities were similar. You had about roughly one-fifth of young people ages 18 to 29 saying, I'm strongly supportive of the current health care bills, and I strongly oppose them. And these data were in January before the March vote. And now after, well, this is right before the vote, again, early March. Um, nope, that's going the wrong way. See, I'm Gen Y, so I know technology, but not as well as you do. So here, yeah, meaning the arrow. Uh, in the days leading up to the vote, unconvinced of legislation's merits. I think this is really important because if you listen to the statements on the floor of the House and you look even look at some things that were entered in the congressional record, you were being used as the reason this really had to pass. And I thought that was particularly disingenuous, if not ironic. Um, and the you, because of the strong numbers supporting um, the president when he was elected, the Democrats when they were elected, and one would think, by extension, the major centerpiece of their domestic agenda. But this is a really important type of question. Right before we asked, you know, which of the following do you want Congress to do? Pass it as is 5% of young people saying yes. One-fifth saying, just stop this altogether. No surprise if 79% think it's the wrong priority right now. 
and 74% think that we can't afford it right now. 50% say, hey, I do want health care reform of some sort, but why don't we start from scratch with a bipartisan proposal? This is coming from younger people. And then the ones with major changes and minor changes. Now, post-vote, good thing or bad thing? About 17-point difference there, but 40% of young people saying the health care as they know it was a bad thing. Was a bad thing. It's a very simple up or down kind of uh, construction. This is a Gallup poll, but it was taken this week, so I wanted to share it with you. Then what is your expectation of the health care law? Um, I've got it all down. This is Pew. Uh, what will get better under the new health care law versus stay the same or actually get worse? Very mild optimism among young people whom this is supposed to help with respect to what's going to happen. 17% the wait times will get better. 21% choices of doctors and hospitals will get better. Out-of-pocket costs will get better. Quality of care. So there's even a skepticism among those who aren't necessarily within the health insurance system on their own yet, maybe away from mom and dad or out of college yet. Um, Real skepticism there. They anticipate minimal improvements to health care and economic systems um, from this particular reform. Again, this is a sample, so we're asking half about the economy and half the health care system. But again, do you think that the nation's economy or the nation's health care system would be better off or worse off if they pass this? And the green is worse off. So it was very clear. I mean, I think when Senator Alexander went to the White House summit on health care in February and said to the president, Mr. President, the American people have said every way they know how that they just don't want this type of health care reform. doesn't mean we don't want health care reform, and let me make very, that very clear in my remarks, but not this health care reform. Uh, and I think that's exactly true when you look at this. That was well said. Also, it was very remarkable to me to see this is a different poll. These are 21 separate polls that we did in 21 different congressional districts, all held by pro-life Democrats who also were swing votes, some of whom voted against health care the first time and the second time, some who voted against it the first time and switched their votes, some who voted against it and then switched their votes um, to yes and, and vice versa. But majorities of 18 to 34-year-olds, whom otherwise call themselves, quote, pro-choice on abortion, although usually with uh, restrictions, said using tax dollars to pay for abortions and in the separate question, taxpayer funding of abortions as part of health care reform, they oppose that. Um, and that's very simple. I mean, even the 17 Republican members of the House who happened to be women all voted against health care reform and all voted against the provision, in other words, voted for the Stupac Amendment. Um, God, if my name were so close to the word stupid, I don't think I would have changed my vote, but that's just me. Um, but all voted for the Stupac Amendment, even though eight of them are pro-choice, because this is a funding issue. This is, what do you mean, again, abortion is in the health care plan, but not tort reform and not interstate competition. So this tells you a lot about it. And uh, not only are they opposed young people to um, abortion funding and health care, regardless of their underlying position on that issue, but they embrace free market reforms. I was so tired of hearing about the party of no, and there are no alternatives. There are alternatives, and they were presented. And if you went to GOP.gov, they were all laid out there for anybody who wanted to do that. But we wanted to test the free market reforms. And so among 18, 24-year-olds, 56% say, let people in one state purchase health insurance. I mean, you do it for everything else. Uh, as 6 and 10 said, allow small businesses to form groups to buy health insurance at lower rates and get purchasing power. This is a really important issue. I'm a small business owner. The irony is in my, in my shop, 
Um, our employees get full comprehensive benefits, dental, eye, everything. We're not hiring right now. Calm down. But, um, you know, all of that. And when I looked at Obamacare and I asked people in the know and asked our attorney, my folks would be worse off by miles, by miles. Um, but I just give them health care reform as it's one of the benefits uh, that attracts them to employment, I guess, or retains them and, frankly, just respects them as individuals. But three-quarters of young people say enact provisions that allow people to buy health insurance on their own with the same tax benefits um, as people who get. So there are free market reforms when young people are respected enough to have them presented to them, they embrace them. There's also rejection of cost shifting in healthcare. I know this looks like a very long um, G person. One says this person, two says it's a heck of a lot better than asking the ridiculous polling questions like, do you support or oppose healthcare reform? It's like making, it's like trying to find who's a likely voter this year. The worst way to find out is ask, are you likely to vote? Oh, absolutely. Vote? I'll be right there. Yep, I eat all my green vegetables. I never cheat on my wife or my taxes. I'm in church every Sunday and Wednesday. I'll be right there to vote. So, you know, asking, do you support or post health care reform? Sounds great. Many people did at the beginning. Then they found out what was meant by health care reform. So it's really important to let, to, again, to respect people's intelligence enough and to be fair that everybody answering a question, regardless of gender, race, economic, uh, household economics, uh, work status, certainly formal education level, understands through the same lens. So everybody has read the same thing here. And all you see is that people would prefer that um, the person, that people should not be required necessarily to, to shift the cost. Um, let me just quickly. Uh, why do I mention Obama? Uh, because it's important because young people supported him so heavily and his numbers now at 56 41 among young people, but on the economy, it's reversed upside down. And on health care, it's even worse. 44% approve, 53% disapprove. And uh, this is just a remarkable turnaround, and it did not come from nowhere. It's, uh, they, they've been paying attention. They've been doing the math. And then um, I think young adults are not committed to vote as much this November as they were in 2008, and a lot of the data show that. Again, I think that's important because even if young people aren't going to vote, I really hope that they sort of rise up and become active about health care one way or the other because it's not been implemented yet. There's still time. Then my last slide is about defining the generation. I think that um, it's difficult to define any generation. Uh, we said my generation, Generation X. The X is sort of the unknown variable. Um, but this generation, technology is a native tongue, so if you want to reach out to them, this is certainly one of the ways. Um, very entrepreneurial, very libertarian. And I think that that is also why this health care plan did not and does not fit with the generation. And I think the generation and being entrepreneurial means many of you, many of your peers, uh, want to be small business owners at some point, want to do your own thing, want to have that flexibility and not go into corporate America or work when you want to work, um, get the job done. This really, I got to tell you, as a small business owner of 15 years plus, this really inhibits, if not prohibits, a lot of entrepreneurship. I once asked Larry Kudlow on CNBC, who's going to write the story of all the small businesses that never got off the ground because of this health care reform? And it's true. It's not hyperbole. Um, the customization nation, from your iPod playlist to Frappuccinos to Match.com, you know, you're just accustomed to making it your own. This is a one-size-fits-all 
absolute centralization of healthcare, and I think it goes right against your rugged individualism and your and again your expectation of immediacy and a little bit of impatience. And I say that as someone who also is often impatient, so it's not a, criti- a criticism. Um, where is the healthcare? People who did buy into it and thought it was a great idea, they're they're wondering, well, where is it? Where can I point and click and get it? Again, got that Frappuccino this morning on my match.com, finding the perfect mate again. Good luck with that one. Um, you know, where is the where where is it? You told me it passed, you told me it's coming. Where is it? And I think that disillusionment and that frustration is also going to spiral a little bit forward. So thank you very much for your time and attention and all the best to you. That was certainly bleak um, that we've heard from the panelists. Although I am going to use that shopping in a Soviet safe way, if you don't mind. That's great. Thank you. Um, so, so in light of all the things that we've just heard from the panelists, I would uh, like to give them a minute or two to discuss some of the ways that we can move forward, that we can enact reform that is actually reforming the system, and set ourselves back on a policy towards having a better health care system. So I'll start immediately to my left. Each of the panelists want to take a minute or two to discuss reforms. To discuss what we should be doing. Sure. What would you give us to take away? Uh, in, in terms of health care reform, really two simple things. Not, not, uh, uh, and this law does neither of them. It does the opposite of them. Uh, first, uh, the, let consumers control the money. In our health care sector right now, government controls about half of the money already directly and indirectly controls uh, about a quarter or more of the rest by giving that to employers and then heaping all sorts of additional regulations uh, on our healthcare sector. Uh, but if you just look at the money, government controlling half, employers controlling another quarter because of a pe- tax penalty that the uh, government imposes on people who want to buy their own health insurance, we have 75% of, our, of the money in our healthcare sector that's not controlled by the people the healthcare sector is supposed to serve. If you want to subsidize people, that's fine. Um, if you want to subsidize them through government, I'm not a big fan of that, but at least give them a voucher and let them purchase the health plan that they want. Do this for seniors in the Medicare program, for example, and get the government out of the business of deciding what they will purchase and the prices uh, they'll, they'll pay for certain things. Let the people control the money. Uh, the second thing that we should be doing in terms of reform is uh, – is massively deregulating our healthcare sector. It's the most heavily regulated sector of our economy. We should be eliminating price controls like the ones I mentioned, which already exist in places like Massachusetts and New York and other states. Um, we should be eliminating all sorts of other regulations and mandates that have been imposed at both the federal and the state level. Uh, if our, the U.S. healthcare sector is worth anything, it is uh, because we have allowed certain corners of our healthcare sector to be little laboratories. We've let market forces breathe in these corners of our healthcare sector, and we have seen wonderful innovations. We have seen prices fall for uh, medical goods and services. We have seen um, innovative health plans that provide secure health insurance to people when they get sick, that make medicine safer, that make it more convenient using electronic medical records and, and, and conduct research to tell us what uh, uh, treatments work better than others. We need to give those market forces room to breathe. Letting the consumer control the money and deregulating health care is how you do that. Michael talks about choice in health care, and a lot of people think, you know, you can't make choices in health care because we don't have enough information. But there are so many places in our $2.5 trillion health sector 
that people can make choices. You know, you can make choices about the kind of health insurance that you want to have. Do you want a high deductible policy, a low deductible policy? Do you want an HMO? Do you want um, PPO? Do you want a health savings account? Those are the kinds of choices that people can make and make decisions about, about the kind of financial protection that you want if you should get sick. It's not saying that if you're wheeled into an emergency room on a gurney that the doctor's going to lean over you and say, oh, I see you have a health savings account. Do you want a CAT scan or can we just, do we have to just do an X-ray? Those are not the kind of decisions that you're being asked to make. Being asked to make to make sophisticated, smart decisions about your own ability to protect yourself financially and continue to get the kind of coverage you want. Um, you know, repeal and replace every. I think that the fact of the matter is that Obamacare is law, and we have to live with this. And we've got to figure out what are we going to do with a law that is going to potentially do such huge damage to our health sector and to our economy. We really only have scratched the surface here of the job-killing impact, the high taxes, the destruction to Medicare, the disruption to, to the quality of health care. Doctors are completely frustrated right now with, the, with all the bureaucracy and paperwork that they have to comply with to practice medicine. It is going to get so much worse, and we are going to drive doctors, the best doctors, out of the practice of medicine. So we do need to, when we talk about repeal and replace... What does that mean? Well, it means if you sort of done, you actually I think we have a handout there where we sort of talk about what does that stand for, and there really is policy behind that. That we first of all have to get rid of these massive new taxes in this legislation that is going to further cripple our already struggling economy. We have to eliminate so repeal. repeal the the new taxes, eliminate the job-killing mandates that are going to make it so much more difficult, as Kellyanne said, for small businesses to be able to, to hire new people and to expand especially. Protect people from IRS enforcers with all of the 16,000 new IRS agents that are going to be hired to enforce the individual mandate. Eliminate cuts in benefits to seniors that are going to take away They're basically cutting benefits, not giving them more choices, and we can solve that problem. Avoid crippling the states with huge new taxes. Indiana did a survey and said that this legislation is going to cost the state of Indiana $3.6 billion more than their current budget, and they, they simply can't afford it, even with the new subsidies. And then finally, limit government intrusion into health care. So there's, there are policies behind repeal. What do we need to do to get rid of all of this? And then replace, we need to give people real choices of health insurance that works for you. And that means many more choices, not many fewer choices, as this legislation currently would, would require. Expand the state's ability to help people with pre-existing conditions. This is not something the federal government can do. This has got to be a state authority. Put Medicare savings back into saving Medicare so that we can begin to reduce some of that $38 trillion in Medicare debt that I talked with you about. Allow doctors to and patients to control medical decisions rather than Washington bureaucrats and control costs through consumer-friendly reforms and expand choice by allowing cross-state purchasing of health insurance that Kellyanne talked about. So repeal and replace really has serious, solid policy implications behind it. And I think you're going to see next year a lot of the 
discussion about these specific provisions in really getting us back on the right track with health reform. I'll be very brief because I adopt and second everything that my colleagues have said. Um, the burden is on people who want young people to know about health care reform to reach them. People just cannot, whether it's the proponents of the health care reform legislation that passed or people that would prefer it had not and re- and would prefer to repeal and perhaps replace it, you have to go where people are. And I don't think that technology is used as well in this city as it could be. And the one thing I'll give the Obama campaign is um, the brilliant use of technology to reach young people. It really gave them some buy-in. For $1, you can join the campaign, be part of the campaign, and the campaign would communicate with you. And you may say, yeah, but $1, you're costing me money because it's probably going to cost me about 50 or 60 bucks to keep you informed, you and a million people like you. But did it really, if then you go on Facebook and you tell 100 people what you just did and 10 of them do it or 30 of them and then their friends do it and their friends do it? I think the same has to happen with policy and not just once every couple of years. And so, you know, in, in um, gosh, five or 10 years ago, there were 7% of people on a social networking site. Now it's um, three, almost three quarters of young people and uh, 93% of even 15 to 17-year-olds use email, excuse me, use the internet and use email. So I think that um, what I would like to say, I'm, d- I'm t- going to talk more about the mechanism by way to reach young people and get them engaged in what I think is one of the fights of their generation. So with that, I'd like to open it up to some of the questions that you guys have in the audience. Um, there will be a microphone, I believe, coming to you, or, or just as young people with booming voices, we can excel. Uh, so uh, let's start up here in the front. If you wouldn't mind saying uh, your name and which school you attend. Uh, Trevor Burris, uh, DU Law School. Um, I just was wondering if any of your data about young people supporting the health care or opposing it, because in my experience, they're pretty for state control, so a lot of people who opposed the Obamacare opposed it because it didn't have a public option. And I wonder if any of the, the polling you've done reflected that. That's a good point. Uh, some of them do. Some of them were expecting that. And in fact, they believe they were promised that. And I think they're right. They were promised that. So there's some disillusionment there. Um, but notice how they also weren't willing to take three quarters of a loaf. And so that's very curious to me. It's sort of, you know, my way or the highway on health care reform. Um, and I guess what has what engaged them to get involved and to vote the way they did in 2008 and to vote at all in 2008 was in part because they believed that changes coming to Washington, change would come in health care policy. And so they were not willing to compromise even a little bit. So there is some of that is embedded in those numbers. But um, but the larger portion of it is is that young people are just reflective of what happened to the population generally. That I think the the proponents of this kind of health care reform came out and believed most people, particularly women, looked at it th- through a, as a heartstrings issue. So if I could just keep leading with these heart-wrenching d- anecdotes of the woman who was denied the mammogram three times, the eight-year-old boy who did not get the transplant on time, that people will say, that just so angers me in a country such as ours. Why does that happen? I, I'm for health care reform. And instead, and believe me, they're still leading with those anecdotes. Again, if you paid attention to the White House um, summit, every single... Democrat who led, Harry Reid led with one, Nancy Pelosi, they all led with, I just got a letter from so-and-so, and and I just got a call in in my district, so-and-so. Folks, we are a compassionate people. We all feel very, very 
badly about all of that. There's just no question. But that's not, in the end, the way most Americans, including young people, looked at health care reform. They didn't look at it anecdotally. They looked at it economically. And they did not like the costs and consequences. They did not like the implications. And frankly, and I don't blame you for this, don't really like being saddled with the bill long term. I believe we have a virtual question for a virtual audience, rather. We have a question from Michael, one of our online viewers. Uh, it's for Michael Cannon. In a free market, health insurance for people with pre-existing conditions such as diabetes can be very expensive and simply too expensive for many people. I think most Americans want these people with pre-existing conditions to be able to afford coverage. Is there a more efficient way to subsidize coverage for these individuals? You can insure people with diabetes if they buy insurance before they uh, develop diabetes. Once they have diabetes, it's very... Uh, Insurance markets will not cover uh, an, a known illness. They will not uh, cover it because it's not insurable. There's no uncertainty around that. What you're asking uh, to do is, um, if is essentially the insurance company to, um, uh, what you'd end up doing in a competitive marketplace would be asking an insurance company to pay uh, all, of the all of your medical claims and you'd be paying them 15%. On top of that, your premiums would be so high, it's, it's unaffordable for most people. What, but uh, insurance markets, what they have done is they uh, provide coverage for people with diabetes. If you purchase insurance while you're still healthy, before you have an illness, then not only do you get to keep your insurance, contrary to what the president has, 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 uh, and uh, supporters of this law have said, you get to keep your insurance uh, even if you get sick, and your premiums don't go up to reflect your new uh, health risk because you bought protection against that risk of your premiums going up as well. Now, that still leaves a problem. As I mentioned, the folks in Group E, the folks with diabetes, the folks who didn't purchase health insurance before they got sick, either because they never had a chance, they were sick since birth, or uh, who uh, were um, imprudent and didn't buy health insurance while they could have, or maybe they never had the means. These people need subsidies, and I want to live in a society where we subsidize those people. Uh, and there, there are many different ways we can do that. In our lifetimes, the government uh, will, I, I, I think, always have a role, uh, will always play a role in subsidizing those people. If, they try, if the government tries to subsidize those people through insurance markets the way that Obamacare does, those markets will unravel, unravel uh, as I uh, explained. It will also provide much worse medical care for those of us who, who remain in those markets um, as, as they uh, spiral downward. So there are ways of subsidizing those folks. I prefer private charity, but there are even ways for government to subsidize those folks that are not as destructive as Obamacare. And they're also – I mean, they're – we rely on the creativity of the marketplace, there are ways that we can actually have health plans for people with diabetes to be able to have them take advantage of the, the learning that we know about what do people need that have diabetes? How can we be particularly supportive of them? There are provisions in the, um, the Medicare Modernization Act that passed in, in, in 2003 to really provide targeted care for seniors in particular that have special uh, special illness, illnesses where you can have coordinated care, focused care, and really do a better job of taking care of those patients because your focus 
just on their on their illness and really bringing the wisdom and the learning of a, a medical system and being able to use information technologies to be able to help them get the care they need. So we can once again bring market forces to bear rather than thinking that we have to treat absolutely everybody the same. Everybody is not the same. And some people need specialized care and the market could provide better care for people if we would allow that to happen. Uh, let's go with the uh, lady in the middle. It takes a minute, a second. I, I'm, af I'm afraid I lied because we could not hear you after a minute, a second or a minute. The, the microphone didn't pick up. So the question was about a public option. Did we do uh, bet better for having dropped that from the law? Grace Marie, do you want to? Take that first? Well, if you just look at some of the some of the data, I think there's a reason that Congress, which really wanted to pass this legislation, and Nancy Pelosi really wanted to have a public option, the data just didn't support it. There were some early studies that showed that if you had a public option with the system of subsidies that there been the the original versions of this bill, that um, 117 million people would lose the coverage that they have now. So it was just so disruptive to the market. Nobody really has a model for this. And if you suddenly say, we're already creating a model with these exchanges run by the Office of Personnel Management, where there never was a single hearing in Congress to try to figure out how we're going to do this. But then you'd be creating whole new insurance plans that we have no experience in doing. 117 million people in these plans. It was way too much change, way too fast. And even Democrats in Congress began to say, that's too much, we can't go there. After enormous number of changes in this legislation. I think it showed you it's not where our country is. It's not where our culture is. And it's it simply we didn't have the expertise, the the person power to be able to make that work. I think that – can I take Absolutely. a stab at that? Um, a public option uh, would, in my view, would give us much worse health care and at a much higher cost. But I don't think – and so uh, – but really, the law that we got, by dropping a public option, all we did was buy ourselves a few years before we had a public option and the high-cost, low-quality health care that, uh, that that would bring. And the reason is it has to do with the mandates and the price controls that I was discussing before. Those are going to cause the private market to collapse. Every time costs increase, uh, every time – and I didn't discuss this in my presentation, but these price controls create serious uh, incentives for insurance companies to deny care to sick people uh, – some of uh, President Obama's own economic advisors have uh, done research that shows that with these price controls in place, health plans that provide quality care to sick people go out of business. So they're not going to try very hard to do that. They're going to have to compete not to do that or, or, or to uh, avoid dump and mistreat sick people. Every time they do that, 
Every time costs increase, it's going to be blamed on private insurance. There's going to, uh, the politicians who, uh, who scapegoat private insurance companies are going to find a welcome uh, audience among the public who've, who've had uh, unpleasant experiences with private insurance. And that is going to create a vacuum into which a, a public option uh, will be introduced. So I think that either we repeal this law or we're going to end up with a, with a public option. Uh, dropping it uh, before this law was passed only bought us a few years. I saw a question in the back. You need it for the web. Right, for the online audience. Okay. Um, I'm a little bit curious because no one on the panel mentioned the fact that the bill provides for coverage I'm sorry, I'm Brent from University of Richmond. Um, but I'm surprised that no one mentioned that the bill provides coverage for us uh, on a plan until we turn 26, which is basically the entire age range that your whole presentation is about, 23 to 26. And that's in the bill. So I'm just curious as to maybe you know why that was omitted. I actually try to forget that. Um, just kidding. It sounds so appealing. It's just so incredibly offensive to anybody who likes the free market and thinks that all of you are talented enough uh, to find jobs and figure and negotiate health care or have health care connected to that or through your small businesses or whatnot. The other thing that's going on here is the demographic reality that 21% of 18 to 29-year-olds in our country right now are married. And that's less than half the number of your parents' generation at that age. And so the idea there is to protect people who, I think the people who came up with the idea, one of the ideas there is to protect people, quote-unquote, who don't have the option of being on somebody else's health care plan through marriage. Um, and it's all, But I also think it's a very cynical recognition of the reality that they failed to focus on the number one concern, according to all the polls, for the 19th, 20th straight month now, jobs. And so in failing to focus on jobs and employment, there's think maybe they predict that you won't have a job by the time until you're 26 and beyond. And so we'll just make sure you have health care. So that is, yeah. So, yeah, right. It sounds great to you. It's going to come with a really high cost. It's one of those things that if it sounds too good to be true, it is. And they'll, they'll talk why that is. Well, it is going to increase premiums, and it's also only available to people who, um, who have parents who have coverage that provides dependent coverage for dependents who are unmarried, or at least dependents who can be married but their, their families can't be covered, and only if they don't have job-based coverage offered to them separately. So imagine that. The employer has to go, the, the level of information that they have to get, I talked to somebody at a major retailer, he says, do you realize the information we're going to have to get from our employees to know whether or not this is legal or not? The so, personally intrusive information. Yes, you mean, and yes. it's just, it's not going to be available. To, it's such a better solution would be to say, Let's provide health coverage that's really affordable to you, that you're not going to lose when you turn 26, that's portable. And it doesn't matter whether you're in school, whether you have a job, whether your parents have policies at work. It's another one of those contrivances that really doesn't solve a problem but just really tries to give you another slogan. And that is what you're mentioning is a mandate that, as Grace Marie said, people or employers that offer dependent coverage have to offer it to uh, people uh, to 
dependent children up to the age of 26. A couple problems are, uh, that have already been mentioned. Um, one, only if they offer dependent coverage. They can avoid that mandate by dropping the dependent coverage. Two, uh, you're not going to stay under 26 forever. And when you turn, uh, actually, when you turn 26, you're going to have to get health insurance maybe through one of these exchanges where the insurance company have an incentive to avoid you when you're sick. The cost is going to be much higher as a result of all these other regulations. And uh, three, it's not free. It's that, that costs something. I mean, it's nice to say, and, and they lo- love to give that impression every time they talk about the, the quote-unquote protections in this legislation, that they don't, it doesn't cost anything, or the cost is minimal, or the cost is going to fall on someone else. The cost is mostly going to fall on the uh, people in this room and others your age. So um, I think there are much better ways. And now, some people are going to get health insurance because of that very mandate you mentioned who wouldn't have it otherwise. So it will do some good. I don't want to deny that. I think it's going to, in the long run, do much more harm than good because it because this law creates so many perverse incentives for insurance companies to avoid the sick, for uh, politicians to increase the cost of health insurance. We're going to get more expensive and worse health care as, as a result. Uh, let's go back towards the middle. Kellyanne needs to leave. Can we give her a round of applause? <laughs> She has to catch a plane. I've got a kid in daycare. You don't see me getting up. <laughs> she has Sorry. to catch a plane. I guess, I guess we can make this uh, one more virtual question and, and the last question up here. So, Brian, go ahead. Um, uh, Brian Jackson Green, University of Chicago. Um, I believe the day after health care reform was passed earlier this year, there were several states that brought um, constitutional challenges to the legislation. Um, and the argument, if I recall, was that uh, specifically that uh, the individual mandate was unconstitutional, uh, an unconstitutional use of the Commerce Clause, uh, which didn't permit the federal government to compel individuals to purchase uh, health care insurance uh, from private companies. And I was wondering um, if either of you, in the sort of reforms you mentioned uh, that would help bring costs down or like or move health care reform in the right direction, do you see uh, this bill as being uh, this law? I'm sorry, is being struck down as unconstitutional as being like a realistic or or likely means of achieving those ends? I think that the uh, the individual mandate is really an unprecedented assertion of congressional power without basis in the Constitution. Advocates of the individual mandate will say the Commerce Clause gives Congress the power to regulate commerce among the states. And the federal government has said that that extends even so far – I'm sorry, the Supreme Court has said that that extends even so far as – Uh, a farmer's decision whether or not to grow wheat for his own consumption. But the Supreme Court has never said that Congress has the authority to force people to engage in commerce. That farmer, um, uh, and it's a famous case, Wickard v. Filburn, that farmer uh, was just growing wheat for his own consumption. Congress didn't say, you must grow wheat, or it didn't say, you must sell wheat, or you must buy wheat from someone else. If Congress is allowed to force us to purchase health insurance, uh, if the Supreme Court interprets the Commerce Clause of the Constitution, the uh, power to regulate commerce among the states, as giving Congress the power to force us to buy a private product, then there's no limit to what Congress can do in the economy. They could force us to buy uh, spinach if they think that that's going to make us healthier. They could force us to buy General Motors if they think that's going to help uh, the economy, if we buy domestic versus foreign cars. They could require us to buy anything. And so I do think that there is an argument to be made that under Supreme Court, uh, the Supreme Court's constitutional jurisprudence, which is something 
uh, quite distinct from the Constitution itself. That uh, that that Congress um, uh, that Congress has this power. There is that argument to be made. I think it uh, uh, it falls flat though because this is such an extreme stretching of the uh, t- plain text of the Constitution that it cannot be supported by that text. In fact, I think those who were drafting this legislation were aware of what what thin ice they really are on with this individual mandate to purchase health insurance because there is a lot of justification in the legislative language itself for an individual mandate, which is really say, starting to make the legal arguments for the individual mandate in the legislation itself. But it really is a very diff- different and difficult question to tell people that you have to use your own personal money to buy a private product and we're going to fine you on your taxes if you don't do it. And they kept saying over and over, no, no, this isn't a new tax. But yet, now their legal argument is, yes, this is based upon the the constitutional taxing authority. So I think this is going to be a very, very interesting and difficult battle. Ken Cuccinelli, the attorney general of Virginia, was one of the first ones to file suit against Obamacare. And he said, basically, he sees no authority in the Constitution to force somebody who wants to do nothing, they just want to sit in their house and not buy health insurance, for the federal government to come in and force them to purchase health insurance. It's going to be an interesting battle, and I think the court battles are going to, they're going to be numerous over the next several years. And our last question, sorry, are we running low on time? Lots of good questions here, but I have to pick one. Uh, so one viewer asks, uh, what will be the impact on medical students, medical schools, both sort of immediately and in the, in the long run? Well, there are lots of new subsidies for medical students and a lot of government determination about what kind of medical education is going to be subsidized or not. So once again, market intrusions and market dislocations. Certainly there may be some of that. We want to incentivize people to go into primary care. But there is just a lot of micromanagement. What I worry is with so many new rules and regulations, so many new mandates, so many performance tests and quality tests for doctors, that doctors are just going to say... I just, I just can't do this. It is just, I want to treat patients. I don't want to spend all my time doing charts and paperwork. And if I wind up with, you know, with having to do nine different codes for this patient and I get one of them wrong, I have to go talk to the hospital administrator. It's not going to be fun to practice medicine. They're going to go do something else. That's what I worry about. It's not going to attract young people into this profession. When the money uh, gets tight, as it always does as a result of uh, health insurance uh, uh, expansions, government health insurance expansions, for example, the Medicare program has required a a tax increase every four years uh, since its inception, and it's still trillions of dollars in the hole. One of the places that Congress goes when the people say, we're tired of you raising taxes, is they try to pay doctors less. The... um, uh, they're right now trying to roll back a reduction, you know, a 21% cut in, in physician fees. But this is uh, how, they, how the government saves money in the Medicaid program. They pay doctors very little, and so do- very few doctors participate. And given that you've got a, uh, an $80 trillion unfunded liability in the Medicare program, that money is going to be that short, and we're creating new uh, entitlements through Obamacare, there's going to have to be cuts. The, the Congress is going to have to cut spending, and one of the places they're going to turn is uh, payments to uh, physicians and other clinicians. Um, and so that is going to be, you know, that's that's. I think that's going to be the future for a lot of um, for a lot of current med students. 
I think uh, P.G. O'Rourke, who's a famous author, said it best when he said, if you think healthcare is expensive now, wait until you see what it costs when it's free. And I think that's actually a concern that a lot of individuals in our generation of 18 to 29-year-olds fear is that we see a nation that's $13 trillion in debt and growing. We see a government overhaul of a system headed our way, a devastating price tag that's just tucked so deceitfully behind this banner of equality and opportunity. But we also see the reality. We see that the only way to truly reform healthcare is to shed the shackles of government regulation in favor of individually tailored plans and empowered consumers who control their own healthcare. Because our generation actually can control our future instead of being hostage to these power-hungry politicians. This legislative nightmare of bureaucracies rationing care is not going to be health care of my generation, of our generation, because we will not be misled by empty promises. Our generation is instead have to be realistic about decisions to cut costs, increase access, and ensure the quality of care. And we've seen how these goals can be accomplished by a program that taxes us to subsidize those that are healthier and wealthier. We're not alone in our skepticism, and the consequences of such a system are ones that we are going to reap for the rest of our lives. So to counter this, we have to expand insurance for individuals and the choice that they have over that insurance. Using market-based reforms, as our panelists mentioned, to decrease overspending and actually save when we say we're going to have savings. Respect the value of our generation and our voice, because we're actually the ones that has the greatest stake in where healthcare moves in the future. So as President Obama and Democratic leaders travel around the country and go to these town hall meetings aimed at seniors, and political elites, our generation gets an obligatory wave. We're told not to worry, that all these troubles are far from reality, that financial instability won't actually happen, and they shed more meaningless rhetoric as they walk by. But it does nothing to address real problems of an overburdened and underfunded government system. These acts are all symptoms of an overreaching policy, a system of health care that cares neither for the sick nor the young, neither for the disadvantaged nor the unemployed, but instead caters to bureaucracy and special interests. Today, we've learned the potential for reform and for real change that enables individuals to care for themselves and voluntary associations that can care for each other and a stronger relationship between provider and patient than between government and force. These are steps that our generation has to take, both for our country and for ourselves. So then let's stand up. Let's take charge. Join with others who understand that we know ourselves better than any politician knows us. We can start by forming groups back on our campuses and by joining with other students for liberty to take back health care. Because after all, this is our health care. This is our nation. This is our future. And it's about time the representatives started listening to us. This panel does not, however, mean the end of the discussion, and it certainly shouldn't. So in the interest of continuing discussion about how the overhaul will affect our generation, I'd like to invite everyone upstairs to join us for a reception, where there will also be more literature available from Cato Institute, Galen Institute, and Students for Liberty. And for those who would like to watch the webcast of this panel, please visit the Cato website at catooncampus.org. For those who love the auditorium and student events, I would like to invite you to return for a debate on libertarianism versus conservatism here on July 14th. And the next Cato on Campus event will be on Friday, July 23rd, and feature a discussion on how the greening of America affects our generation. It should be another great event, and I really encourage all of you to attend. Finally, I would like to thank the co-sponsors of today's event, the Cato Institute, whose campus programs offer a variety of in-depth opportunities for youth, and the Galen Institute, which is an excellent source of health policy research. 
I also want to thank Chip Bishop, who couldn't be with us today because of a family emergency, but put in a lot of time putting this event together, and he really deserves a lot of our thanks today. So thank you again to all of the panelists, to all of our viewers out there, and the guests here in the auditorium for your participation. I look forward to speaking with you all more, because it is truly in our generation's hands to make healthy reform, and I can't wait to see what we can accomplish together. Thanks very much.